Well, it's it's good to um, it's good to be with you. Uh, we're doing a series on love, and um, because it's so misunderstood, it's so needful. We live in an age that talks about love all the time, uses the word, and yet it's an age of of outra- outrage. It's an age of anger. It's an age of uh, not listening. Um, at the same time, and so we we need to get to the roots. What is love? Uh, Jesus talks about it all the time. The scripture talks about it from beginning to end. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbors yourself. And Bill Bill spoke yesterday, and we see it in, in, in Christ. Uh, uh, um, people will know, how will people know that you are my, my disciples, that you love one another? And we're doing, uh, the scheme we're doing is uh, different um, appendages. And so Bill talked last week about the hands of love. And I'm going to talk this week about the feet of love and um, hands, you know, practical ways we uh, can uh, affect other people's lives. Feet, who, who is God calling us to walk towards in love? Uh, who is God bringing into our lives to show God's, to whom to show God's love? And uh, the passage I'm going to use tonight to talk about that is John chapter four. I'm going to read uh, the first 26 verses. This is, uh, this is uh, Jesus with the woman at the well. Very famous passage. Some of you will know it well. Some of you less so. And uh, you can uh, follow along with me as I read. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's more disciples than John the Baptist. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That means noon, heat of the day. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let me pray as we open this up. Heavenly Father, bless this word to us. Bless our time together tonight, our fellowship uh, in your spirit. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Um, we know you are present with us, even through mediums like Zoom. Um, worship uh, is possible uh, by, by the means of, of your spirit, uh, through the salvation brought about by your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. And so, so this passage, uh, you know, it's very striking. Uh, Jesus, this whole conversation shouldn't happen right? It shouldn't happen. Like I, the, the woman, uh, she says it to him directly. Why are you asking me for water? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's the gloss from uh, the gospel writer, John. Jews have no dealing. Who were the Samaritans? They were, so they were neighboring, like Jesus was from Galilee in the north of Israel, and Jerusalem was in the south, and he'd gone down, and then he was going back up uh, to Galilee. And in between was Samaria and Samar the Samaritans were very similar to the Jews. They also had uh, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Samaritan Pentateuch is actually used, um, for old Testament, uh, textual analysis. And, uh, but their, their worship was somewhat different. It comes out in the, in this passage, uh, they worshiped on Mount Gerizim. You can go there today. There's still some Samaritans left, not very many, but there's still a community. There's a ruined Samaritan temple on the top of Mount Gerizim. And so they had a difference over worship. That's the one difference in the Samaritan Pentateuch with the, compared to the uh, Masoretic text. Is the, they, they, it, it says you should worship on Mount Gerizim. And so they had this conflict over worship. And they were in many ways quite similar, yet very, very much against each other, right? It's often the people you are closest to in proximity or even in beliefs, uh, as with the Jews and the Samaritans, who, you'd, who you have the um, most anger for right it's your your roommates are most likely to become like either lifelong friends or um people you're very very ang angry with um the people on your hall uh, your family members right it's like proximity uh is a great can be a great blessing but it can also be a great challenge and there was war often between the jews and the samaritans there was conflict there was one war after this time the romans suppressed they just took to crucifying people until the two sides stopped fighting each other um, and so they shouldn't speak to each other. You know, Jesus is walking through, he's at the well, but he shouldn't speak to her. He shouldn't even to ask her. I mean, they've been walking uh, heat, dust, uh, and I'm sure he's actually thirsty. It's not just a trick. Like he's at, he's going to start an evangelistic conversation with her to show her she needs spiritual salvation. He I'm sure he is actually thirsty. The disciples are off buying water. They come back in the passage immediately following with that food. And he tells them, I have food of which you know not, you know, in both cases, he uses the opportunity to invite um, them to enter into eternal life and to receive the Messiah. So they shouldn't speak to each other because he, Jesus is a Jew and the woman is a Samaritan. And we, we, we lose sight of that often because Samaritan, it's a redeemed word um, because of the parable of the good Samaritan for us. And so we have very positive connotations with Samaritan, but in the original context, the connotations to a Jew would be very negative. And also he shouldn't speak to her because he's a man and she's a woman. But again, in the passage that immediately follows, the disciples come back and they see him talking to this woman. They're surprised. They don't say anything to him, but in their hearts, they're like, why is he speaking to her? Not that, I mean, he, his, in his inner circle, there were many women, uh, but they were, you know, there were, there, it was fine for him to speak socially, uh, acceptable for him to speak to respectable women. You know, you think Mary and Martha, 
know, respectable women who host you in their home, prominent uh, women. And the same thing, prominent men, respectable men, that's who you should talk to. Not, and Jesus is always going out of his way to talk to people he shouldn't talk to, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, and Samaritans. So he shouldn't, he shouldn't be having this conversation. And she herself also, there's a huge difference in social class here, huge difference in social class. She's coming in the heat of the day. This is telling because normally the women would come and get the water in the morning when it's not so hot because it's hard labor carrying the water. And she's coming alone in the middle of the day because she's a social outcast, right? She is a social outcast because no doubt of her many failed marriages. So even among the women of her own village, it's not just that she's a Samaritan, but she, in her own context, she's an outcast. And here is Jesus having a real conversation with her. And he's not trying to hit on her, nor is he trying to attack her, but he is seeking to invite her to receive eternal life. So he's crossing uh, in, in, in the effortless way Jesus does. This makes a beautiful contrast with the previous chapter where Jesus is down in Jerusalem, and he's having a similar yet different conversation with Nicodemus, who's a member of the Sanhedrin, you know, the highest level of society. And this woman at the well is the exact opposite. You know, she, she calls Jesus here, Lord. I mean, it's translated as sir down there in verse 19, courier, Lord, right? She recognized, especially once she realizes he has prophetic insight into her life. Um, she starts trying to distract him with theological debate. She's like, oh, I see you're a prophet. You know, where should we worship? You know, um, and he brings it back to we will worship. The time is now where we will worship in spirit and in truth. And the previous chapter, he's been talking to Nicodemus, who's the exact you know, pinnacle of Jewish society, a teacher of the law on the ruling council. It's like a senator mixed with a theologian um, all in one. But again, in each circumstance, Jesus just has this penetrating call on the individual, the offer of the, of the gospel, the offer of salvation to Nicodemus to be the command to be born again, right? The need to be uh, born again, to be washed clean of your sins. And, um, to be made a new creation. And so he, here we see Jesus, when we think about the feet of love, Jesus is walking through enemy territory, through the land of the Samaritans. He's walking there. And then this woman walks to him. And here she is right in front. But all the normal expectations would be they would ignore each other's presence. Right? He'd sit there. She'd go about getting her water. And they would pretend they, they, they didn't notice each other. But she's walked, she's walked right up to him. He's walked into her country and she's walked up to him and he takes the opportunity to engage with her, to show God's love, to extend the offer of uh, water uh, that will lead to springs of eternal life to her. He even, and this is so telling in verse 26, he even reveals who he is. You know, in so much of the gospels, Jesus is constantly hiding for so much of his earthly ministry. You know, he doesn't, he delays revealing that he's the Messiah. He's always like downplaying. He heals people. And he says, tell no one. They always tell people, um, <clears throat> you know, he's always like, he's always because he had a deliberate step-by-step -step process and he wasn't rushing to the cross, right? He had an earthly ministry to fulfill, but her precisely because she's so, uh, um, uh, such a point of vulnerability in society to her he's just straightforward she says well i know that messiah will come the christ messiah is the hebrew right for anointed one kings were anointed prophets 
um, uh, priests, uh, the anointing, the, the anointed one. And there are all these prophecies in the Old Testament pointing towards the future coming Messiah. And Christ is the Greek, right, for anointed one. So, and Jesus is the Christ. When we say Jesus Christ, we mean he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And, but I love this passage for just the simplicity of she walks up to him and he speaks to her. Because how often I, isn't this our lives that people are often right in front of our face and yet we treat them as if they're invisible. And they treat us as if we're invisible. You know, one of my, one of my good friends at Princeton, you know, he was, he was from a very wealthy um, elite of a, of a country overseas, uh, another country. And, you know, and he was just joking, like he, he had many servants, household servants, you know, a cook, a chauffeur, a uh, maid, uh, you know, and so on. And, you know, and he said, and he said, and I said, oh, wow, you know, you have all these household servants. And he's like, everyone has household servants. He said to me, everyone does. And I said, the servants don't have household servants, <laughs> right? There are people, and we're the same way in America, you know, we're not as explicit. It would almost be more honest if we had, we went back to the days of having household servants. I was reflecting on this, you know, Christine and I, we, we've taken to using Instacart um, to get our food delivered to us. It's like, there's just a host of people who deliver all our packages, our groceries in all sorts of ways, hidden uh, uh, or invisible to us. And it's even worse now, you know, in the age of COVID, they drop it off at the door and take a photo and leave without you seeing it. Like it's, it's designed. It's designed that like we, because of our prosperity, should be able to have everything we want delivered to us as if, as if the people who serve us don't even exist. That's the, the power of the gig economy. You know, at least my friend in his country, it was straightforward. <laughs> here is my maid, <laughs> here, here is my driver, and here, here, is, here is my cook. There was an honesty in that. And so people, people often, well, God brings them right into our path. And yet we don't notice their existence, either that whether they're physical needs um, or let alone their, their spiritual needs. And I, so that's one thing. Notice who, who has God put in front of you. A, a, second, thing, a second thing is, uh, I just want to draw out this specific aspect. Jesus asks her for help. And again, I do think it's important. This is like a real need. Jesus is making a point here that ultimately, like, what is food and drink? In the grand scheme, what does it matter, food and drink? What matters is that you know God and are right with God. Have, have your sins been covered over by the blood of Jesus? Ultimately, that's the fulfillment of this whole, the whole message of John's gospel, right? Why was it written? Why did, why did Jesus come? So that he could save many. So he could call a people unto himself by being a sacrifice for sin. So that since we are unable to earn our own salvation. He would provide it as a free gift for all who call him Lord, as this woman does, but in a stronger sense, all who call him Lord in that true sense that the Jews said Lord when they, they you know, rather than the personal name of God, rather than Yahweh, right? They said Adonai, and in Greek, kurios, they said Lord. All who call him Lord, master of my life, my savior, the one whose sacrifice paved the way that I can be uh, clothed in righteousness uh, before the throne of God and have everlasting life, to be born again, as Jesus said to Nicodemus. But he, even that, so he's, he's saying, this is what matters. You need water that comes to eternal life. And in the passage immediately following, he says it to his disciples, you need bread 
and uh, you need to be sent out into the harvest uh, to harvest souls, right? But still, Jesus asked her for a drink, and because he's thirsty, he was a man. He was God and man, fully God and fully man, is fully God and fully man, and he asked her for a drink. Are you good at asking people for help? In some ways, it's easier at Princeton to give an exhortation, love people. And this is, this is where I want to head. It's like we need to, to love people with God's love. We need to walk towards them. We need to meet their physical needs. We need to think in, in broader systematic ways, as uh, the Apostle Paul did when he raised money in Greece to care for the saints in Judea. We need to proclaim the gospel. Ultimately, and above all, we need to call people to repentance and to salvation. And we need to send out harvesters into the field here and nearby and to the ends of the ends of the earth, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But can you ask for help? Jesus could ask for this woman to help meet his immediate physical need for water. And, you know, I think for a, a lot of us on this Zoom call right now, it's a lot easier to go to the ends of the earth than it is to ask the person right in front of us for help, even for something so simple as a drink of water, even for something so simple as that. And so much as Jesus is saying to the woman at the well in Sychar that she needs him in an ultimate fundamental sense as the Messiah, as the anointed one, nonetheless, he, he, he is in need of assistance from her, just as he's in need of the people in the town to sell food to his disciples. And so when was the last time you asked someone for help? Help, uh, I mean, hope maybe you're bold on it. Uh, you know, I hope if you have problem set, you're bold to ask for, ask for help. Um, it, but on, on small thing, you need practice in asking for help. You know, some time, the time will come, maybe it's tonight, where you need to ask for help on deep and profound things, matters of, of, of life and death, matters of, uh, that, that will affect the course of your life. And, you know, it helps if you're in the habit of asking for help on small things. and on medium things and big things. It's a skill to develop, to ask for help. Well, let me turn, I wanna illustrate this. So this is, uh, you know, this passage is very famous. Part of the love being shown here is the breaking down of boundaries. And, and I, I do wanna draw out also the fusion of uh, practical needs with uh, the message, uh, the, the um, sharing of uh, the good news, the bringing people to faith and new life. And I, and I want to illustrate that. This is February. This is Black History Month. I want to, one of my uh, seminary professors, Stafford Carson, an Irishman himself, um, he said, you know, we have this challenge in the church. This is her pastoral ministry. We have a challenge in the church. Often we have churches that, that say, well, we, we, we preach the gospel and um, there, why would you waste time even um, as strong as that on questions of um, uh, meeting people's needs, social implications of the gospel, you know, raising money in Greece to support the saints in Jerusalem, so to speak. Is that a distraction from the proclamation of the gospel? And alternatively, we've had lots of churches who abandoned the message of salvation that you need a savior, right? When people become members of PCF, that all men and women are lost in the natural, their natural state and in need of a savior. And we've had many churches that abandoned that and turned only to questions of how to change this world, how to improve this world, maybe even in good ways, but how to improve this world with no view 
to being born again. And one thing uh, Professor Carson said was that the African-American church, particularly, actually the black church more broadly, also in the Caribbean and in Africa, has never had that problem of having both those things held together, both the social implications of the gospel, caring for people's needs, while at the same time, the unashamed full proclamation of the biblical message of Jesus Christ as your only savior, your only Lord. And so I, I wanna highlight a little bit for Black History Month um, from actually Princeton's history. So I, so I wanna mention, uh, and you can throw this um, in the chat, Anna, Theodore Wright. So who was, who was Theodore Wright? Theodore Wright was the first uh, black graduate of Princeton Seminary. You know, he, that was in 1828. He was the first black graduate of any theological seminary uh, in the country. And uh, yeah, you can pull up his Wikipedia page and ignore what I say and read that. Um, he, he did a lot of interesting things. And so he was the first black clergyman um, who was able to get a theological education. You know, Princeton didn't allow African-American students, even 100 years later in the 1930s, the university um, was still prohibiting African-American students. There were some exceptions when James McCosh was president. Um, he wasn't concerned with American ideas of segregation, but otherwise the university um, uh, prohibited uh, black students, but the seminary had black students from early days and Theodore Wright was the first of many. And I wanna highlight his life because he's in many ways like what every Princetonian dreams to be and that he started new things in every sphere all at once, right? He was the pastor of a black church in New York City. And what did that mean? Well, it meant gospel proclamation, fierce gospel proclamation, salvation in Jesus Christ from beginning to end. He was there his whole ministry until he died, perhaps from exhaustion. If you read his uh, uh, biography, you'll understand how he might have died of exhaustion. That's the Princeton dream, right? To work so hard that you die of exhaustion. And, uh, but it was imperative for him uh, as a minister in the black church to, he had to be attacking everything uh, at the same time. He founded schools. He started a society, the Phoenix Society. It was focused on education. It was focused on uh, literary conversation in the black community. It was focused on entrepreneurship. He started a, 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 an anti-slavery society uh, the, uh, he was one of the founders of the American Anti-Slavery Society and was uh, part of the Underground Railroad. But it wasn't just the social activism, which was in imperative because it was, you know, it was a titanic effort in the 1830s to have any education at all for black children in New York City. But also he started a missionary society to send missionaries to Africa. And even when, even when he was uh, the uh, American Anti-Slavery Society, they, they tried to hire him late in his life in the 1840s to just go around. They said, leave, leave, leave aside being a preacher and go around. We want you to be our delegate traveling, speaking in the uh, uh, anti-slavery cause. And he turned that down because as important and as tireless as he was in fighting slavery, the proclamation of the gospel, that was the goal, all right? That is the key, the sending of missionaries. And so he worked on all these levels, practical needs. How can we educate? And in, in educating, how can we get clothes donated to children so they have the right clothes to wear to go to school? So every basic detail had to be taken care of. Everything was lacking. Everything had to be done. And not just schools, but also entrepreneurship, business, having opportunities other than menial labor, 
enabling people to um, lift themselves up. And fighting on a national scale questions like slavery. I mean, you can see if you read his Wikipedia article, this, this is drawn out at one point he opposed a call in a, an assembly to for violent revolution in the South by slaves. And at a later point, he supported it against Frederick Douglass. You know, they were intense times. But you see in his life that fundamental mission to proclaim the gospel, to call people to salvation, and to send out missionaries domestically and overseas. And uh, let me just throw, you can throw this as a book recommendation. Um, Black Prophets of Justice. There's the, the link from the publisher. You can buy it wherever you like to buy books. And uh, this is a book, it, it, it profiles six different black preachers from the antebellum period uh, in the North. And uh, it's, it makes for fascinating reading and challenging and inspiring reading. What does it look like for us? I mean, we're blessed, I think, um, in that hopefully we don't have to do every single detail. We're not quite, maybe, maybe we have more, uh, the luxury of more resources than Theodore Wright had and his co-laborers in the gospel. But what are the needs that God has put in front of our eyes? What is God, what is God bringing to you? Who is he having walk to you? And who is he calling you to walk towards? And that's deeply personal. It's just Jesus with one woman at the well. And she then goes and tells her town and many then come and hear. But it's also, uh, it, go, it goes in every stage Right? The, the, the call of the gospel is in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the implications of the gospel, yes, they are proclaiming and calling people to salvation, but inescapably, uh, it, it com compels us to care for people. And on campus, you know, in, it's, in, it's in interesting ways. You know, on campus, and this is, these are questions you can discuss in your breakout room. What are your needs? And what are the needs of people around you? And sometimes it's hard because Princeton itself is a bubble where hopefully um, things are provided for you. Many things that are needed are provided for you. That may not be the case, um, but there is, you know, we do swim in a sea of Princeton's wealth. But as we know, the moment you come to campus and you move into those dorms, you know that the needs are dramatic and deep. The spiritual needs are dramatic and deep. The, the, the counseling needs are dramatic and deep. You know, we proclaim the gospel in PCF. We call people to salvation. We also have long conversations about every other issue that matters in life because God cares. He, he desires that every part of your life be held captive to service to his glory. And so what, what are your needs? What are the needs of those around you? Not just the needs they think they have or say they have, but their deeper spiritual needs. And what are we doing to show the love of God, to listen, to care for, and to proclaim what God would have us proclaim? Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I pray that you bless us as, as a ministry. May, may we reflect your love. May, may we be equipped, Heavenly Father, to... Um, testify to who Jesus Christ is. And may we be equipped, Heavenly Father, to um, uh, uh, demonstrate uh, the love of Jesus Christ to others, that when people are in need, that we would meet those needs. And we know, Heavenly Father, there's a deep need for growth in all of us, growth in wisdom, growth in maturity, growth in insight, growth in uh, discipline, growth in uh, care for others, growth in fearlessness uh, to um, share our faith. Um, 
And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that by your spirit, you would be accomplishing your will. We know that you are, your spirit is at work in our lives such that we might work out our salvation uh, with fear and trembling. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.